an Englishman and Irishman, they go into a bar. Uh, if I was to say that, if you're from the UK at least, uh, you would expect a joke to follow. Isn't that right? One that would probably poke fun at the Irish. Uh, perchance, uh, the Scotsman in the joke, uh, the Englishman in the joke, they wouldn't do anything too spectacular. But the Irishman in the joke most likely would do something a bit daft. That the Irish have, of course, unfairly uh, been lampooned as being a bit silly and a bit backwards. Isn't that the case? Well, this evening, I feel like the Irishman in the jokes. Because tonight, what I have to do before you is I have to do things backwards. You see, tonight, I'm going to speak to you about the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to speak to you tonight about the authorship of the book, the purpose of the book, the themes of the book. And here's the deal. When would you normally expect to to get a sermon like that? You would normally expect to have a sermon like that at the beginning of a sermon series and not at the end of a sermon series. But such is the section of scripture that we've got in front of us tonight. That's not how we can roll. But I do want to say this to you. That what we're going to look at tonight is key, critical to understanding Ecclesiastes. It is important for your life, I believe. Because tonight in Ecclesiastes, we will be granted a bigger view of God. We will be granted a bigger view of how it is that we must obey what he says to us in his holy word. So, if you haven't... I would ask you to please turn with me back to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and to have this short portion of scripture open in front of you. And first of all, let's consider something about the very writing of Ecclesiastes. The writing of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you look at what you've got in front of you tonight, you see that it kind of resembles almost an appendix, almost like a sort of postscript to the book itself. It's almost like the book of Ecclesiastes ended uh, at the last section where he says vanity of vanities and that this little section that Johnny read a moment ago, it's almost like it's a kind of an afterthought. But the question that we have to wrestle with is, well, actually, who wrote this little section? Because look at verse 9. Isn't it a bit peculiar, verse 9? Look what it says, besides being wise, how does it speak of Solomon? But besides being wise, the preacher also taught, like do you see, it's almost like they're speaking about Saul, it's like somebody else speaking about Saul, you see, it's the preacher, you know, it's like he's looking on to Solomon, and because of that, I think I'm right in saying that the majority of scholarship would say that it's somebody else that writes the section that we're dealing with tonight. That, yeah, maybe Solomon's written the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, but in this section tonight, somebody else has come along, somebody else has concluded the book. So that's probably the majority of scholarship would say that. I'm going to disagree with that this evening. Uh, I think Solomon did indeed write this portion of Scripture, and I'll tell you why. Friends, it was actually reasonably common in the ancient Near East for books to end like this. It's reasonably common for the writer to write what he had to write 
and then at the end of the book to sort of write in the third person a reflection about the writing process. You see? In fact, you know what? That's not all that unfamiliar to you or to me, is it? Let's see, we did a, I don't know, a counselling course at college, university. Now, what would we be asked to do in that counselling course? We would be asked, okay, as part of your assessment, I want you to go and counsel that person, I want you to go and speak to that person, and then I want you to write your reflections about how that went. And that's what Solomon's doing here. You see, at the end here, he is reflecting upon the writing process of Ecclesiastes. You understand? You follow me? What does he say? Okay, well, the the first thing he speaks about, I really think we could call his spiritual generosity. See, you are a, a biblically literate group of people. So if somebody says to you, what do you know about Solomon from earlier on in the Bible? What are you going to say? What do we know about Solomon? We know he was a king. We know that. What else do we know? We know that Solomon was a man who was bestowed, was given wisdom. Wasn't he? He's Solomon, a wise man. God graciously bestows all of this wisdom on Solomon. Now, my question then is, well, what does Solomon do with his wisdom? Does he store up the wisdom for himself? Does he just keep it to himself? Well, look at verse 9. What does Solomon do? He taught people knowledge. You see, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon has been keen to impart some of this wisdom to the community of faith, to the people of God. Now, Thankfully, that's not the main point that he makes here. Because the main point that he makes as he reflects upon this book is this. The sheer incredible effort that he has put in to writing the book of Ecclesiastes. He's talking here about the stress of writing Ecclesiastes. Now, have a look at uh, verse 9, as verse 9 moves on. Now look at some of the terms that he uses here. Solomon has had to, what's this? He's had to weigh things up. The book of Ecclesiastes. He's had to, look at that word, he's had to study. And he's had to arrange, do you notice he even says that he's had to take an awful lot of care. He's had to seek God's face in writing Ecclesiastes. So do you see the point here? He is talking about the fact that he has had to put an inordinate amount of effort in putting together this book. And if you have been here, a London City Presbyterian Church, for even some of the series, don't you agree with that? Effort that Solomon's clearly put in here. It's a beautiful book. Remember even last week? What did, Sol- what did Solomon do? Last week he didn't write for us, do you know what, people, you are going to decay and you are going to die. Instead, what did he do? He clearly spent hours crafting this wonderful, evocative description of the problems of old age. Didn't he sharpen the horns with this beautiful message for the people of God all the way through these 12 chapters? He has worked hard. Then I have to ask you, what sort of book is Ecclesiastes? 
How would you answer that question? I say to you, what is Ecclesiastes? How would you respond to me? What would you say? What's Ecclesiastes? You'd always say, oh, and it's a book of the Bible. Great. What else would you say? What is Ecclesiastes? You would say, it is a work of wisdom literature. Would you say that? Yeah. But how was it that Solomon was described in verse 9? Look again. How was he described? He is what? He is the preacher. And if he is a preacher, what then is Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes is a sermon. Is that not what we have said all the way through the sermon series? This seems to be a sermon that Solomon has preached towards the end of his life. Do you see where I'm going with this? Do you see what this is actually about, this closing section? Solomon is talking about the sheer graft he has put into sermon preparation. He's saying here that he has nearly killed himself in preparing to preach. And I think because of that, there is application, not just for me. There's application for every single one of us in here. See, I I wonder if you would agree with this, that the church in the United Kingdom seems to be changing really rapidly. I think even in uh, conservative evangelical circles, there has been a marked movement away from what you and I would call expository preaching. And and that sounds good for somebody to sort of moan about the lack of preaching. And I think you've probably noticed it yourselves. You know, you go to a church somewhere and where a guy would have preached for half an hour before, you can see that the sermon... They give 20 minutes, they give 15 minutes to the sermon. So you see that. But even the terminology that conservative evangelical churches use now has changed. Isn't that right? Gone has, the idea of a sermon has gone. And it's replaced with what? It's replaced with the idea of a talk. Like, don't you see that that is symptomatic of a bigger problem that we're dealing with? Like, gone is the idea that this is a declarative thing. That this is a proclamation of God's word and it's been changed. The idea's changed. It's now an informal talk. Well, friends, I say to you, there is one crucial lesson that we must learn from the effort that Solomon puts in here. That we as a church, like Solomon, have to have a high view of preaching. We in here, we have to support sermon preparation. Does that sound good? A view of preaching? Supporting sermon preparation? How do we do that? Let me suggest two things to you. One, we all get involved in sermon preparation. You see, how do we do that? That even starting tomorrow morning, we pray about the preaching next Sunday. I am on holiday. Somebody else will be here next Sunday. Let us, all of us, pray for the preaching. Let's pray throughout the week. Let's all of us do what Solomon is doing and put effort into this sermon preparation. But there's a second thing. What do we plan to do? 
the next couple of months as a church. We plan to appoint a pastoral assistant. And I say to you, that might be a man who is inexperienced in preaching. So what must we do as a church? We must support him in his sermon preparation. We as a church must insist that that man, whoever he will be, that he spends proper time in the study. We insist that he spends proper time on his knees before God. We insist that he spends proper effort in preparing to preach. Why? Why? So that he might show us that we might see more of this great God that we worship and adore. So we hear, we see here something of the writing of Ecclesiastes. Okay, there is a second thing that we see in the short uh, section of scripture, and that is the aim of Ecclesiastes. The aim of Ecclesiastes. And because if you look down, you see that sort of verses 11 and 12 form a little subsection. And in that, you and I are given an insight into what Solomon was trying to achieve when he wrote this book. What was he trying to do? He writes Ecclesiastes. He writes it for the community of faith. What, what was he trying to achieve? What was his purpose in writing this book? Let me suggest a, a, a few things here. One, Solomon in writing Ecclesiastes, he was wanting to move you. He was wanting to move you. Now, if, if you would do this with me, if you'd look at verse 11, there is a weird word in verse 11, there's a very uh, unusual, uncommon word. I'm sure it jumps out, out at you, does it? He likens Ecclesiastes to a goad. <laughs> I, uh, I've got to be honest with you. Maybe I shouldn't be, but I'm going to be. I, uh, until this week, I wasn't 100% sure what a goad was. Like I knew it was used elsewhere in the Bible. And I had a sort of vague idea what a goad was, but I wasn't 100% sure. So just in case you are as ignorant as me, uh, let me explain to you what a goad is. A goad was a long wooden staff that had nails protruding from the end of it. So you got the idea, almost like a, a club, big long wooden pole, but with nails sticking out. And that sounds vicious. Isn't it? it sounds almost like a kind of weapon of war. But maybe you notice that 11 and 12 here is a shepherding metaphor. So do you see what a goad was used for, friends? A goad was used for moving livestock. Like a goad was used by a shepherd for moving, separating the flock, moving sheep and goats around the place. So do you see... What Solomon is trying to do. What does he do? He likens Ecclesiastes to this God. What's Ecclesiastes meant to do? It's supposed to move you. You know, as you study it at home, as you hear this book preached, Ecclesiastes is supposed to shift you spiritually, to push you onto the straight and narrow. It's supposed to move you along this road of sanctification. And sometimes, because of the nails at the end... Sometimes to your discomfort, sometimes to your pain. This is a book that's supposed to move Christians. But it's also 
a book that is supposed to reassure Christians. I, uh, I think I've said this from the before, but I uh, despise DIY. I loathe DIY. And recently, uh, my wife has made me do DIY. Uh, we've moved some of the stuff around the, the living room in the manse in Woodford. And I have loathed some of the tasks that I've, I've, I've been uh, commissioned to do. Uh, I now know that there is uh, nothing worse in this world than an insecure raw plug in the wall. There's nothing worse, you know, uh, to put up a picture or a mirror and to be not 100% sure that that's going to stay where you put it. Uh, That's horrible. I also know that there is nothing better on this earth than knowing that you put in a raw plug properly. You know, that it's going nowhere, that screw, that you could hang an elephant from that and it's not going anywhere at all. Now look at what Solomon says in verse 11. What does he say about Ecclesiastes? Nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Do you see what he is saying to us? He is saying that he has given you in this book something that you can trust. You know, do you want wisdom? Do you want to know more about politics from God's point of view? Do you want to know about joy and death? You have got in Ecclesiastes a book in which you can trust. So it's supposed to move us. It's supposed to reassure us. The last one here is that this book is supposed to satisfy your soul. Now I wonder if you noticed when Johnny read this out, God warns you tonight. Verse 12, warning shot across the bow. Beware of what? Of anything beyond Ecclesiastes. That's quite a, quite a phrase. Now do you see what he's getting at? We have in Ecclesiastes a book that can bring satisfaction to our souls. If we tonight yearn to know more of the meaning of life, And we yearn to know more about joy and wisdom and death. Solomon is actually saying there that no matter where else we look, we're not going to find any better answers to any of that stuff than you have before you in the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, there is knowledge that can satisfy your heart. And I wonder how you would respond to that. Do you, do you think that is the most arrogant thing for a guy to say when he is reflecting on his own writing? You know that, wow, my book is awesome. You don't need to look anywhere else because this book I've written, it is tremendous. Does it sound arrogant to you? Do you understand why it's not arrogant? Do you see who he gives all the credit to? Do you see who he actually says has written this book? Look at the end of verse 11. He says, see all of these things, everything I've written, it's given by one shepherd. And you know tonight, don't you, who this shepherd is. Why is it that this is a book that can grant a sufficiency of the soul? Why? Because it is a book of 
God and not a book of man. So I wonder this tonight. Is there a tinge of regret this evening? I mean, Solomon's talking about has shown us how exalted this book is. And he's seen some wonderful things. This is a book that's supposed to move us, reassure us it is written by God. And what happens tonight? We close it. And, and we end the sermon series. Is there not a tinge of regret about how you and I approached Ecclesiastes? No. Well, if so, let me suggest two things. One, Read it again. Read it again. This week in your devotional life, open Ecclesiastes. If God is using this to move people, to reassure us, to teach us, let's read it. Let's pray over it this week. And the second thing I would say to you is learn a lesson from that. Everything that I've just said of Ecclesiastes is true of the rest of God's word. Isn't it? God uses it to move you and to reassure you and satisfy you. The rest of scripture is divinely inspired. And we will begin a new sermon series. So let's learn from our regret. Let's come next week, the week after. Let's come to the service and come so prepared. Let's be prayed up. Let's read in advance. Let's be spiritually switched on. And let's be ready to hear what God has to say to us through his word. We see something of the writing of Ecclesiastes, the effort. We also see something of his aims. And then the last thing this evening, we also see something here of the message of Ecclesiastes. Okay. (laughs) I think we have to be honest, don't we? Ecclesiastes is a dark book. Um, Some of the commentators, good, solid commentators, have frequently used actually the word depressing. A depressing book. It's certainly not a walk in the park. There's been an awful lot of negative observation through this book, hasn't there? Remember that vanity, vanity, the meaninglessness of life. Yeah, dark book. Do you know what? See when Solomon begins to bring all of this into conclusion here. He kind of shifts gear and he gives you a positive message. In fact, he actually gives you a positive charge tonight. And I want you to look at it with me. Look at verse 13. What is the positive charge? Fear God. What a way to close a book. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, what does that mean for you and for me and what does it involve? Well, if we know anything, we know that the fear of God was a principal theme in a large chunk of the Bible. Don't we know that? We know that The wisdom literature, all of the wisdom literature in Job and Psalms and Proverbs and so on, it exists for one essential aim, and that is to engender a genuine fear of God. People submitting to God in a reverential faith, we know this, 
But we also know that the second element there is in keeping with that. Do you see that we are to bow to God, but we're also to then live out our lives in obedience to him. We have fear, but we also have obedience. Now, lest you need motivation to fear your God this evening, Solomon ends with two motivations for you. Ready for these? Friends, we are to fear God because it is the meaning of your life. And I love that idea because you know how society portrays things, don't you? Society culture tells us that there's one great unanswerable question. You can imagine it, Ricky Gervais or a comedian like that is on a talk show or he's doing a stand-up and he will slag off Christianity and he will say, how can these people possibly know what the meaning and the purpose of life is? You see, you know, society tells us, you know, you can explore these things and you're welcome to do it, but you're never going to know the meaning and the purpose of Isn't that the standpoint of society? I love what you have in your hands. Because tonight, here, right now, think of this, God tells you the purpose and the meaning of life. Do you see what he says? Look at verse 13. He says, why should you fear me? He says, because this is the whole duty of man. Do you see how big that is? I mean, what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? Man is created for his creator. The meaning and purpose of life is to enter into a relationship with God through this fear, through this reverential faith. And then I will close the sermon series with the second motivation you have to fear God. Listen, we must fear God because one day we will all stand before him in judgment. Would you look at the last verse of Ecclesiastes? Look at the last verse of the book. We should fear God for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And friend, if you are not a Christian, if you're not born again this evening, I hope you see in that what God Almighty is saying directly to you tonight. Friends, he's saying not just that he knows the secret actions of your life. He knows them all. He knows your secret thoughts, your motivations, everything. He's not just saying that. He is saying that one day he will act in judgment over the secret things of your life. That one day he is not just going to expose all of those to the whole world, but he will assess And he will punish the secret wickedness of your life. Is there not motivation there for you to fear the living God? But what if you are a believer?
is the motivation to obey God not different for you? What is our motivation? We fear God, but what's our motivation to, to live in obedience to God's command? What is your motivation? Is it not sheer gratitude? Because what is true for you tonight? You need not ever dread or fear that day of judgment. You've no need to fear it. And why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has already borne all of the guilt for all of your secret sin. He's taken all of the punishment for your secret and not so secret wickedness. He's taken it from you. He's borne it himself on that cross. It's all gone. He's taken it all. You have no need to fear the coming day of judgment. And so what do we do as the people of God? We surely go into London this week resolved to live for him, to be his commandments, to glorify, to bring all honor to Jesus Christ. And how do we do it? How do we do it? As his people in light of the cross, we trust and obey. Let's pray.